All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Christine Pelisek, and she published a book in 2017 on a subject, a serial killer that took place, or serial killings that took place close to where I live in uh, Los Angeles. This specifically took place in South Central L.A. The title of the book is The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central, published June 5th, 2017. So we're going to cover some of the information she worked at the L.A. Weekly and had the first-hand account and involvement with the case. So, Christine, are you there? Yes, hi. Hi. Th- uh, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who don't know your name, Christine Pelisek, P-E-L-I-S-E-K, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you became involved in the Grim Sleeper serial killing case? Sure. I was uh, working at the L.A. Weekly at the time when I found out about the case. It was back in 2006, and uh, I was a crime reporter there. I'd been there for a few years and basically covered murders and robberies, etc. for the weekly. And I also um, regularly would go over to the coroner's office just to see if he had any cases for me to uh, write about. And uh, on one particular day, I was over there in uh, 2016, early 2016, and uh, he told me about a serial killer task force that the coroner was setting up to look into a series of deaths in L.A. County. And uh, the investigators at the coroner's office had noticed a large number of women who were killed between the years 2002 and 2006. And they wondered if it was the work of a serial killer. And so they wanted to put together a task force to see if any of the cases were linked. And all the cases were women um, in L.A. County. Some of them were found in dumpsters. Some of them were found in alleys. Some of them were found in their home. It was really a real mix. And uh, there was 38 women on the list. And uh, so they wanted to kind of look to see if any of these cases might be linked. And so when the uh, investigator told me about this, when I went over there, he had said that his, you know, the coroner's office was going to do it. And I tried to get specific information about, you know, out of them. And he didn't want to talk to me about it. And he kind of told me to not say anything until they kind of figured out what was going on. Uh, part of the reason the coroner decided to look into it was because they weren't really getting a lot of information from the police departments about each individual case, so they decided they were going to kind of look into it on their own. So after a couple of months of me pestering uh, the coroner investigator, he finally told me that he would let me have this list of these women. And uh, so he gave it to me. This was probably about three months after I initially, he initially told me about it, and so I ended up looking at the list, and there was just a mixed mixed group of women. Over, I guess there was 18 of them were African American women. The other was, you know, Hispanic women, you know, Caucasian women, Asian women, and all of them were different. Like the deaths were all different. So what I did was I ended up contacting all the different law enforcement agencies to see if any of the cases were linked. And that took a while because it was hard to get a hold of the detectives. And a lot of it, which I noticed that a lot of them, you know, depending, there were law enforcement agencies all over Southern California. So I was calling like Long Beach Police Department, L.A. County Sheriff, LAPD, um, you know, all, most, most of them, you know, looking to see, to see what happened to these women. And uh, so I finally got you. I went through the list and some of the women had been 
uh, killed by their boyfriends, and the boyfriend had since been arrested. Other ones, it turned out, they were uh, they died from natural causes. Other ones were they died from overdoses. There was one case where a woman was with a man in a car, and she died of an overdose, and he didn't want uh, anyone to know like he was involved. So he ended up setting the car on fire, and you know the woman, you know his fingerprints, and the women, the woman was were you know was burned. And uh, so then, you know, basically I went through the list and I ended up getting to number 37 on the list. It was a, a young runaway from Inglewood named Princess Bersamu. And I ended up finally getting a hold of the detective handling that case. And he told me uh, that her case was linked to my number 38 case on the list, a woman named Valerie McCorvey, who was an LAPD case, that her case. The two of the two of those cases were linked to a series of murders that happened back in the 80s in South Los Angeles, and in those cases, all the women were shot with a 25 caliber pistol in the chest, and they were all linked through DNA. And so he ended up telling me this, and then I ended up writing a story for the LA Weekly about it. And uh, so that's kind of how it all got started. Now, in that title of the story, that's uh, was that when you coined this kind of sobriquet for the who was doing the killers? Is that correct? Or was that a later? later? No, no, it, it came later. So I ended up doing a story about it, first of all, that there was a serial killer out there. And then what happened was the LAPD started a secret task force to look into it in 2017 when... The killer struck again. The killer struck again on January 1st, 2017. A girl by the name of Laverne Peters was found in a dumpster in South Los Angeles. She was actually in a, uh, her killer had put her in a garbage bag. And they, um, actually the investigators were pretty amazing because they ended up checking the twist tie on the garbage bag and they found saliva from the twist tie that linked to all the cases, like the 2002 case of Princess Bertamia, the Valerie and Corby case in 2003, and then the series of the murders back in the 80s. And that's when my editor and I um, coined the phrase the groom sleeper, and that he had returned and, you know, he struck again. Right. And it was there was a 13-year kind of silence between these connections. And I think you wrote in your book that many of the families of these victims did not know that their loved one was part of a serial killing. Is that correct? Well, right. That's exactly right. I mean, a lot of the victims' families, um, you know, daughters and sisters, you know, died in the 80s, you know, had only spoken to the detectives like once or twice and then hadn't heard from them at all. And so when I was doing my investigation, I ended up contacting the family members and I was door knocking and I went in there and um, some of the cases, I, I was literally the first one, you know, to tell them that their, you know, daughter was killed by a, a serial killer. You know, they were pretty upset that the police didn't let the community know that there was a serial killer out there. And uh, so it caused, uh, you know, a bit of a problem with the, the police department because, you know, they were upset over the fact that, you know, they weren't told. Right. And that, you know, this guy was like a danger to the community, he was out there killing women and Nobody knew about it. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And those kind of early murders that happened in 85 to 88, I think there were nine in total. It happened during a kind of a tumultuous time in Los Angeles. There was like a crack epidemic. And so 
do you think that that might have had something to do with the fact that these women's lives that who lost their lives were overlooked or undervalued maybe? Well, I think a lot of that had to do with it because it was, you know, during the 80s and the, the 90s, there was over a thousand murders in Los Angeles at the time. And I mean, compared to today, there's like 200 and something, you know. So back then, there was like so many murders. It was like sort of the start of, you know, gang shootings. And it was this huge uh, crack cocaine epidemic. There were so many murders. And I think that a lot of these women got lost in that. And, you know, there, I was talking to some detectives, you know, back, you know, who worked South Los Angeles back then. And they, they said that there'd be like six detectives, you know, working a particular police division and they'd have to handle like three or four murders over the weekend. And if you can think about that, you know, they go to one murder scene and then immediately, you know, they're called to another murder scene. And, you know, so it makes it really, really difficult to try to be able to solve these cases, you know, when you have a situation like that. And so, you know, I think these women became like collateral damage to that, you know, because they would just jump around and I don't think they were able to, I mean, I think they tried as best as they could, but, you know, given the circumstances, you know, they, they had their hands full. And I think that the uh, LAPD brass, you know, at the time, you know, they were more focused on other, you know, high profile cases. Like back then, you know, right when one of the first murders happened was at, uh, was right around the time of the Night Stalker with Richard Ramirez. Right. And there was a lot of press conferences and things like that about, you know, him, you know, running around the community. But there wasn't much going on with regard to press conferences about, you know, the women that were, you know, disappearing and ending up, you know, dead in alleys. Right. And the, the, those earlier cases, I think you called him, he had a name like the South Side Slayer, wasn't But there were, I think Tom Bradley... And there was also like a, a community activist, Margaret Prescott, who was kind of on the ground, kind of uh, talking about these problems. Do you, can you talk a little bit about Margaret Prescott? Yeah, sure. Well, originally, I'll just go back to the Southside Slayer okay. for a second. Please do. Back then, they actually thought there was like one detective, there was like robbery homicide, was sort of the elite LAPD unit, and they were looking into some of the cases and so they originally dubbed they thought it was like one killer and so they dubbed him the south side slayer but as time went on they realized that it wasn't just one person responsible for the murders because it turned out that there were six serial killers working at the same time back in the 80s and the grim sleeper was just one of the many serial killers that were murdering women back then and so that's how they originally, you know, they called him the Southside Slayer. But then, you know, as the time went by, they realized, you know, it wasn't just one guy. And they ended up arresting two guys back in the 80s. And then the other ones were not caught until later on when the LAPD started this cold case unit back in, in uh, 2001. And they were able to unearth, you know, because of new DNA technology, some of the guys that were, you know, killing women back in the 80s. But... Back then, you know, with Margaret Prescott, she actually was a, a, an activist back then, and she was really um, important for, you know, putting the word out and everything, because she would have, she'd stage press conferences and rallies at LAPD headquarters, you know, trying to get the police to do something about it, because, you know, they, she was getting calls from families saying, you know, my, you know, sister's missing, or my mother's missing, and you know, people were calling her about bodies, you know, being found. And, you know, so she wanted the police to be accountable to let 
you know, to let them know in the community just how many women were being murdered, you know, because she didn't believe the numbers. Like, they would say, you know, so-and-so got killed, but then she'd hear that more people did, you know. So she was really trying to hold the, the police accountable for their actions. Right. And uh, there was, like, an early, was it the early case where there was one survivor that was able to kind of uh, tell the story of how she escaped him? Isn't that right? Yeah, well, actually, it turned out that there's at least two survivors now. One of them was one of the first victims back in 1984, but they didn't find out about her until he ended up going to trial years later. But um, the woman you're talking about, she was attacked, uh, Anitria, she was attacked in 1988, and she was able to provide a description to the police. So they had sort of an idea that they were looking for an African-American male around the age of 30, and one of the big things that she was able to tell the police was that um, her attacker was driving a orange Pinto. And so that ended up becoming like a, an important detail. Uh, unfortunately, they weren't able to find an orange Pinto, but, you know, they were able to, you know, sort of search around to try to find it. But she also, one of the things she did also too was she was able to take the police to the neighborhood where she was attacked. And it turned out, I mean, she was really pretty much accurate. She pointed out this house that turned out to be three doors down from where Lonnie Franklin, the Grim Sleeper, lived. Wow, yeah. And you kind of became acquainted with her, correct? She kind of had some survivor's guilt. I mean, she was one of the few who kind of made it. Yeah, I I talked to, yes, after um, I found out about it, I ended up finding out that there was a survivor, so I reached out to her, and, and originally she didn't want to talk to me at all, but then she finally agreed, and actually her and I drove around the neighborhood kind of looking for the house because, you know, we had no idea, and, you know, it was 20-something years later, so she had a hard time remembering exactly where it was that he, you know, he dropped her off. And uh, so we ended up driving around a lot, and, yeah, she was, but she felt, she had said to me, you know, there were so many, you know, especially going through the trial and everything, she felt, you know, there were so many family members there who lost a, a child, and she actually survived so she felt you know like she didn't she didn't belong in the group right and she actually she was really shot strong. though she, she was shot in the chest correct that's right yeah, yeah. she um she was going to a friend's house to a party and she was going down the street and she was at this like neighbor liquor, liquor store and she was standing there and this car pulls up and this guy asked her if she wants to ride and she tells him no like get lost kind of thing and then he gets out of the car and he's kind of like chatting with her and when she looked at him, she, she didn't, like, feel scared of him at all. She kind of thought he was, like, nerdy looking. And uh, she wasn't, you know, he, he struck her as, you know, just a, a you know, everyday kind of guy who was just trying to pick her up sort of thing. And so he was like, do you want to ride? And she said, you know, no. And then he was like, well, you know, why not? You know, blah, blah, blah. And then she finally, like, agreed. She was like, all right, it was only a few blocks. But she got in the car with him. And then he ends up saying that he has to stop at his uncle's house to get some money. So she's like, okay, whatever. So he pulls up into in, in front of his uncle's house, or he claims to be his uncle's house, and he gets out of the car, goes in, and then comes back. And then when he gets back in the car, she said that's when, like, his demeanor completely changed. He started asking, like, what are you dogging me for? And called her a different name. And she was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And then he actually drove, like, just literally like one or two blocks and then he pulled over and by this time it was like later in the evening so i think that she met up with him around six or seven and then um 
it was a little later, so it was it was kind of I guess it was dark at the time that you know he um, he shot her. So anyway, so he pulls over, and then he started like yelling at her, and then he shot her in the chest, and she said that she kind of started blacking out. She woke up to him sexually assaulting her, and then she woke up again to a Polaroid flash, and she realized that he had taken a Polaroid photo of her. And, you know, she was telling him, like, take her to the hospital and everything, and he was like, no. And then at one point, he just opened the door and pushed her out. And then he drove off, and she actually got up and walked, like, you know, a mile or so to her friend's house and knocked on her friend's door, but the friend wasn't there and, like, was literally lying on the friend's porch when the friend came home and saw her in the condition she was in, called for an ambulance, and she rushed the ambulance, and she was in you know, in shock, and she certainly almost died, but she survived to tell the police to give them the description, and, you know, it's quite a harrowing tale. Yeah, and is her, her uh, the M.O. was the same with her as it was with other victims, where it looked like they had been pushed out of a car, right? They had bruises, and... Yeah, well, they had, it was very similar, like, he, he shot all the victims the same way, I mean, some were shot once, some were shot you know, multiple times, but it was all pretty much in the chest. So it looked like he was driving his vehicle or was in the driver's side when he leaned over and shot the his victim in the chest because it was all kind of going the same trajectory, you know, sort of going down. So they seemed to think, you know, later that this is exactly like he was sitting in the driver's seat and leaned over and and shot and then you know, toss them out of the car. Like, he had, like, most of them were found in, like, alleyways. Some of them were found in dumpsters. There was a couple of women that were found in dumpsters, and they were pretty surprised that he was able to, you know, lift them up and be able to, like, toss them in, in these dumpsters. You know, so there was all. And, so, and he also, you know, put a lot of debris over his victims. Like, a lot of them were found with, like, mat old dirty mattresses on top of them or you know, blankets. One of them had, like, a gas tank on top of her. So he was, you know, definitely trying to hide the bodies, but, you know, of course somebody was going to find them at one point. There are a few of them that took, like, a week or so before they found the remains. Other ones were found, you know, quite soon after he killed them. Fascinating. And then how was the, uh, well, I mean, after the kind of fairly recently, late 2008-9, there was the 800 task force. Can you talk about how this new group was put together to try to find the Grim Sleeper? Right. Well, the, originally, the detect, there was a few detectives that knew about the, like, after the LAPD started their cold case unit, there was, like, one detective in particular who was looking at all the old cases to see if there was any DNA that they could send off to the Department of Justice to get tested. They had... Um, you know, LAPD has like 9,000, you know, robbery homicide has like 9,000, you know, cold cases. So they were looking through, there was a group of them from this cold case unit. So they were looking through all the old cases just to see if there would be any kind of forensic evidence that could be tested. They got a grant from the Department of Justice. And so they were going through all the files. And so this detective, he remembered the Southside Flare killings back in the 80s. So he actually went searching for all the cases to see if there was any DNA that could be tested. And so he ended up finding, you know, a lot of the Southside Flare cases and ended up putting them in to be tested. And so that was in like 2000, like two, 2003. And then all of a sudden, you know, the cases start, started coming back and they realized that, you know, Princess's case, 
you know, linked to Valerie McCorvey's case in 2003, and those cases were linked to the cases in the in the in the 80s. And so, what happened was, so they were, you know, there was this detective he was working on the case, and then all of a sudden the killer struck again, and they realized it was through that DNA that was found on the twist tie. And so that was a January 1st, 2017, and then the LAPD. When they got the news, like literally three months later, when they got the news that Janisha Peters' case was linked to all the other murders, the LAPD started this task force to look into it. Right, and that was 2007. And, uh, 2007, just to... That's right. Sorry. Um, so the you said 2017. So it was the 800 task force was compiled after they realized... Oh, sorry, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, uh, the, uh, so it was compiled after they realized the early cases were related to the newer cases, correct? Well, it was, it was started after um, they found out about Janisha Peters. Gotcha. So they started, and then um, I think you was like uh, these guys, Kilcoin, Shepard, were in contact with some of these victims' families and uh, were really trying to look around. Well, can you talk about what familial DNA testing is? Right. Well, that's um, basically... The problem that the detectives had with trying to figure out who the killer was was the fact that they had his DNA. He left his uh, saliva on basically the breasts of most of his victims, but he wasn't in any kind of felon data bank like CODIS. He wasn't in like a state data bank or, you know, a, uh, a federal data bank. So it pretty much meant that he had not spent any time in prison because if you're convicted of a serious crime, you end up getting swabbed. Your swab then goes into this data bank, and it could be used by law enforcement, you know, in, in other cases. So in this case, the killer's DNA was not in the federal or state data bank, so they had no idea who he was. They knew that the killer was linked to all these cases through DNA, but they just didn't have his name. So that was a problem. So what happened was in 2008, they decided they were going to do this familial DNA test. And the familial DNA test is that you're looking for a relative who has the same, like a similar DNA profile as you do. Like if you have a perfect match for your DNA, you have like a 14 loci, but a relative might be like a 10 or 11. So they wanted to find somebody, like they wanted to find a relative, and they were hoping that the killer had a son or a brother or a nephew or an uncle who was in the prison system and who would be, if they checked for him, he might come up and then they could track down the killer through that person. And they, they had this study done in England where they said that if you're a felon, like if you're a criminal, there's a 40% chance that you're going to have a relative who also is. So they were hoping that they would be able to find like a brother or an uncle, et cetera. And so what happened was in 2008, they did this test, and it came back nothing at all. And so they were, you know, you know they, keep, they kept having to investigate, you know, look, you know, look over the files again, you know, interview suspects. And they spent a lot of time, like over the course of the investigation, they took about 100 DNA samples from different witnesses and things like that, where they surreptitiously go and follow some guy and pick up a can or a cigarette but other ones like they asked them for their DNA but a few of them they actually you know tailed them you know followed them around looking right. for their DNA and so 
but they yeah, did they catch during the- during their investigation. I thought it was interesting that they caught another really serial, intense serial rapist. The West Side rapist was just somebody they were looking for as well. But that was a fortuitous event, right? Yeah, that was pretty amazing that they were able to find that guy because he was responsible for about 50 rapes in the um, Wilshire area of Los Angeles. So, yeah, that was amazing. There actually it was a, de- a different detective, Diane Webb, who worked with all the sex offenders, and she thought that they'd probably find the killer through the sex offenders, and there was, there was like a large number of sex offenders, and so she actually looked at all the sex offenders in the LAPD territory to see if some of them had not gotten, like if you're a sex offender, you have to get, you know, swabbed. And so they were checking to see if all the sex offenders, you know, had been swabbed because some of, sometimes, you know, they fall through the cracks. And it turned out that there was a, about 100 of them or so that actually fell through the cracks. And so then they sent them notification that they had to, that they had to get swabbed. And so this guy, John Floyd Thomas, who was like an insurance adjuster, he was like 72 years old, he ends up going to the LAPD station and gets swabbed. And then three months later, his... DNA comes back to, you know, all these different crime scenes all over, like, L.A. County. So he ended up uh, pleading guilty, and he's in prison now because of the murders. He attacked elderly uh, white women, and he killed a number of them, and they believe he was responsible for about 50 rapes. It's incredible. So eventually there was the son of of Lonnie who was the one who eventually got put into the system. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so in 2010, they decided to try it again. They um, they found out that there was 400,000 more felons added to CODIS, like the data bank. And so they thought, well, maybe, you know, who knows, maybe a relative of the killer would be one of those 400,000 that was put into the data bank in those two years. And so it turned out they were right. Um it hit on a 28-year-old named Christopher Franklin, and they knew Christopher was obviously too young to have been involved in the 80s murders. He would have been like one or two at the time, but they knew he was related to the killer. And uh, so they looked, you know, over, you know, they looked to find his relatives, and they looked in San Bernardino, you know, Rancho Cucamonga, all these areas, but they found that he, his father, Lonnie Franklin Jr., lived in like the epicenter of where all the murders took place. He lived on 81st and Western and 81st and Western was like literally all the murders like just happened around the area. Like, and it turned out that one of the victims, Lucretia Jefferson lived in an apartment complex on the corner of 81st and Western. Princess Berthamew was found about two blocks away. Uh, Barbara Ware was found about four blocks away. And also, Anitria Washington, the survivor, she picked the house that literally was three doors down from where Lonnie Franklin lived. So so what happened was, so they thought, oh my God, this must be the guy. And so they ended up surveilling him. And for the first couple of days, they had no luck. And he went out, he was, when they caught him, he was, well, when they thought he was a suspect, he, you know, he's married, he was a grandfather of two. He was a mechanic. He had worked in South Los Angeles in the 80s as a garbage garbage man. So he had intricate knowledge of the alleyways in the area. He had um, retired from that and was a mechanic and actually was a car thief and um, 
you know, stole, you know, was involved in stolen goods, like, in the area, but, you know, and he had gotten, like, a series of arrests over the years, but it wasn't enough for him to actually go to prison and to get swabbed. And so, anyway, so they end up following him around, and on the first night, he's with his girlfriend, and they follow him around, but he doesn't drop anything, and then the second night, they actually find him, like, troll. he leaves his house around 2 o'clock in the morning, and he's trolling for a prostitute, and, uh, He's seen they have like a car following him, and they see him talking to a girl. And then this under this other police car kind of comes up behind him, and he drives off. And then finally, um, a couple of days later, he's with his girlfriend and her two kids, and he goes to long he goes to a pizza place, and uh, one of the undercover detectives dresses up as a busboy and goes into the restaurant. He's there for a party. Lonnie Franklin is there for a party. And he's in the back room, and he's sitting there with a group of people. And uh, this bus, this busboy slash undercover agent goes back there and starts collecting all the plates and everything, and has like a special bin for Lonnie Franklin's plates, and starts collecting Lonnie Franklin's plates. And when they get, you know, everything, they got like a piece of like a pizza slice, they got like a fork, a napkin, etc. And they immediately take it to the lab, and within 24 hours, it came back as a match. It was. They matched it from the pizza slice, the um, hardened cheese. They were able to get a saliva sample from it. Remarkable. So then he was arrested, and he denied any involvement, correct? That's right. He was uh, interrogated by detectives, and he denied knowing the women, all of the women. And and so he denied it. And he, the trial for Lonnie Franklin just happened fairly recently, with the 2016 I think was it. It was so there was a long process between his arrest and the criminal trial. Is that correct? Yeah, it took it took six years before it went to trial. There was a lot of delays with evidence or delays with the defense. It was a very frustrating time for the families because during that time, some of the family members, like some of the mothers, you know, passed away, and so they were weren't around to see you know, Lonnie Franklin get convicted. So it was very difficult for the family members, you know, who were going to the trial all the time because, you know, they thought that it was going to be sort of a quick thing, you know, within a year or two, but it took a long time. And a lot of the time, the reason for that is because it was a death penalty case. And so they're very careful, you know, with all the evidence because they don't want it to get reversed on appeal. And that's part of the reason, because I think that a lot of these death penalty cases end up taking like a long time. And he did get convicted of the, uh, at least some of the murders and was con- uh, sent to death row at San Quentin, correct? Yeah, he was convicted of all the murders and okay. uh, the attempted murder of Anitra Washington. And uh, he was sent to uh, San Quentin death row where he is to this day. And he, um, I mean, do you have any speculation or idea why that there's this 12 and a half year uh, missing time between some of these murders? Do you have any any ideas on that? Well, the police wondered about that. And there was like, that was a big question back, you know, when it all happened, you know, they thought that maybe he was in the military, which he actually was. He served in Germany where he was uh, convicted of gang raping a woman there, but he came back in the seventies and then went on to get married and have children. But during the nineties, um, you know, like at, at that time, like they thought, you know, maybe he was in the military or maybe he moved out of the country or maybe he moved to a different state. And that was the reason maybe why, you know, there was that break. But now they don't actually think that like since 
she was charged, they actually have found other women. Like, they found a total of 15 that they believe she was responsible for, and not all of them have been found. And so that kind of narrows the gap a little. And so, you know, it depends on, you know, who you talk to. Like, some of the detectives think that he never stopped. And because some of the women were found in garbage dumpsters and probably ended up in landfills. So they think that, you know, there's like a larger body count and wow. that some of the women weren't found in the dumpsters and that they were taken to the landfills and dumped and we'd never find out who they were. Right. And as somebody... And other ones think that right. maybe, other ones think that he may have stopped for periods of time because he had a series of girlfriends, you know, while he was married. And so... They think that, you know, certain times maybe he was happier, you know, like he was fine with his girlfriend at the time, you know, for a couple of years, so he didn't kill. You know, another one think that also, too, he would have had teenage children at that time. And so they might have been like, why is dad leaving the house at two o'clock in the morning, right. you know, type thing. So there's a variety of different theories as to what may have happened. Right. And so uh, we're coming to an end here. Is there anything else that you would like to add or anything I missed? No, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's an important story. I think people should know about it just because I think that a lot of stories get far more attention than this case did. And this guy was, you know, one of the most prolific serial killers in California history. And not a lot of people know about the case. And I think it's important for them to, you know, know about it and to, you know, learn more about the victim, yeah. you know, in the case, which... You know, the focus is never usually on, so... Well, you, you, uh, yeah, you definitely focused on him in the book, so I appreciate that. I think that that perspective uh, was very profound, and it just showed that these were people, and it, it was unfortunate, too. It just saw the wreckage of people getting involved in drugs as well and how they became vulnerable, too, to this, uh, to this predator, so it's... Uh, well, yeah, I was actually weird. thinking about it the other day, so it's like, I was wondering, I'm like, you know, would that have ever happened? Like, would this... But that situation would have happened if the women were, you know, if it was, you know, 2019 and not 19, you know, 85. I mean, there were so many people that got caught up in the, the drug trade back then. And it was just a horrible time. There was like so many overdoses and everything. So would it, things have been different? You know, would Lonnie Franklin have been able to be so successful had he been killing women today as opposed to, you know, back then when, you know, so many women were so vulnerable, they were so, you know, high and, you know, things like that. So they, you know, get into the car and not know what was going on. You know, so if he was doing it today, I mean, I think that he would have gotten stopped a lot quicker. I agree. than it was back then. And also, too, with the story, I find it a, a lot of this stuff, a lot of people don't know there was many twists and turns in the story, too, because there was a lot of people arrested along the way. It wasn't like, there wasn't any arrests during that time. There were, you know, there was these guys arrested, you know, ended up that they had nothing to do with them. There was one guy too, who was an LA County Sheriff who was wrongly accused and he was in jail for a number of months and they believed that he was responsible for the murders. And, uh, you know, he didn't do it. And he ended up, you know, sort of leaving the, the department in shame and his reputation was destroyed. I mean, he was, you know, he was smoking crack with a, a prostitute at the time he was arrested, but, you know, he was charged with, like, murder, you know, murdering, you know, three women and all this other stuff. And so, you know, he ended up, um, you know, sort of, you know, his whole career and everything was, you know, lost, you know, over right. it. So it's really, you know, and it's also, too, the police investigation, too. You know, they ended up going to Georgia, and there was a, um, a, a chaplain that they 
you know, went in, they had to, like, go in there and get his DNA. He was dead, and they ended up having to dig him up, basically, to, you know, check for his DNA because they thought he was, you know, he was responsible. So there was a really, you know, it's kind of a, it was a very fascinating investigation. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I think you got all those details out very well. I mean, it does show that they were actively at least looking after, you know, they tied the two uh, women together over that span of 15 years, and then that's really when it really picked up. But uh, great book, very uh, interesting read, riveting read, really. Again, the title of the book is The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central by Christine Pelisek, P-E-L-I-S-E-K. Where can people reach you? Are you, are you on social media or any other type of uh, website? Yeah, I'm at, um, my Twitter handle is at Chris Pelisak. And I also have a website under my name and uh, tells more about me and the, the book and uh, things that I'm doing now. All right, cool. All right, Christine Pelisak, The Grim Sleeper. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. Oh. Bye. Okay. Are you still there? 